Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome. So happy to have all of you uh, watching today. I think watching now in person, or you could actually be in the future. So I guess this will be the past, but you're the future for, you know, we won't get the timeline confused. Anyway, my name is Mike McShane. I'm an education researcher. I'm a senior fellow at the Show Me Institute. I'm a director of national research uh, at EdChoice. Um, and we're going to talk about school accountability today. Now, this is obviously a term that we hear about a lot. I think in some ways it's kind of a misunderstood term. People are referring to it's a, what, what would we say? It's a word that covers all manner of sins. So we hear all sorts of different discussion about holding schools accountable uh, and what that means. And obviously we want to talk about what's going on in Missouri, what's going on around the country as the Missouri legislative session is kicking off as Lord willing, we're coming out of a pandemic and we have to think, like, think about what schools are going to look like and systems are going to look like after what we've learned over the course of the last almost two years. Um, lots of fertile ground to discuss. And there are no two people that I would rather be talking about this with than the two people that I'm sharing this webinar with today. Susan Pendergrass, who is the Director of Education Policy at the Show Me Institute, and Patricia Levesque, who is the CEO of Excel in Ed. Um, Patricia, I think I maybe will throw the first question to you as just a kind of to do some level setting. Obviously, a lot. It's sort of an understatement to say a lot of stuff has happened in the last two years, but even in the you know three, four, five years before that, um, a lot was happening in school accountability across the country. Standards were changing, tests were changing, you know how schools were being graded was changing. So maybe if you could sort of give us the kind of thirty thousand foot overview as you look across the country, kind of what is the state of accountability? Um, K-12 schools across the country right now? Wow, what a question. Uh, to lead us off, first, thanks for, <laughs> for having me on. We're jumping uh, right in. <laughs> on this webinar. You know, the state of accountability right now is that it hasn't existed for two years in most places because of the pandemic, right? I think, understandably, in that very first school year when um every school across the country was closed and people were not, kids were not having in-person learning. And the timing of that was like right before uh, state testing windows in most states it was very understandable to not have testing that year and to not have school grading or accountability because you had no test data. Last year, from our observation across the country, most states moved forward with uh, their traditional assessment systems. There were tweaks in some states like Colorado, where they um, tested every other year English, and then every the, the opposite years was math. So they did a little different twist and got a, a waiver from the from US Ed to do that. But most states last year did not implement what we would call, or I think most people would refer to as traditional school accountability. So they didn't apply a rating system and there were no consequences for whatever the grade or the rating uh, of a school was. I think we did see in, in a couple of states that had A through F grading systems, there was an optional grading. So if you wanted your school to be graded in order to get off of the school improvement or turnaround list, you could choose to be graded or rated, um, but but really, there was really no traditional school accountability uh, last school year. And then I think this year it's 
it's um, still unclear. The U.S. Ed did issue some guidance right before the uh, winter break, before the Christmas holidays, and um, where they said, you know, you still have to test and grade schools or hold schools accountable this year. But there was a lot of, I'm getting weedy here, stuff in the guidance about how you could change your calculation. Like, here are some ways you could change how you tempor you know, temporarily for one year um, rate your schools. So that's where we are. I think voluntarily holding yourself accountable. I mean, that would be great. How great would that be if we could have that in all other facets of life? It's just like, yeah. you know, I'm just going to decide whether I have a performance evaluation uh, at the end of the year for my job. I and, think I did okay. Surprisingly, right? It's just shocking that the only schools that wanted to be graded are the ones where, hey, we, I think we did better. Stop. <laughs> than the last there, time two years ago. <laughs> is there gambling going on in this establishment? Who would have known that? Um well, thank you. It's, it's actually a really helpful picture to kind of understand what's going on. And I have to I have to apologize to Zach, who is organizing this event today. He gave me one specific instruction before this conversation started, and I didn't follow it. So Zach, mea culpa. Uh, as I think he put in the chat for everyone, obviously this is being done in webinar form. If you have questions, I'm going to sort of lead a discussion here at the beginning. Um, if you have questions, there is a Q&A function at the bottom of the screen. You can submit those questions um, and then we will work them into the conversation. So please feel free to submit those questions. Um, and look, I'm already jumping in because I see a question that says where the speakers are from. I'm from Ed Choice and the Show Me Institute. Susan is from the Show Me Institute. Patricia is from Excel in Ed. So Susan, getting all of that out of the way, um, could you maybe drill down to Missouri? So we kind of took a nationwide look of, of, of what's going on with, with school accountability. What is the current state of school accountability in Missouri today? Sure. So I'm like widely on the record as complaining about Missouri school accountability. I don't think this will come as a surprise to anyone. And um, in terms of the question of where everyone's from, uh, Excel and Ed, it's based in Florida. I mean, it's a national organization that got started in Florida. And I talk about Florida all the time in blogs and in person. I'm always talking about Florida because my opinion, Florida made a really brave move in the late 90s of putting letter grades on every school. And it was painful, I assume, in the beginning. Patricia can speak to that much better than I can. But in Missouri, we are at a we're at the same point we've been at forever, which is no grades, no stars, no colors. There's a word for districts, which is accredited, partially accredited, non-accredited. Eight hit that partially accredited. All the 512 other ones are fully accredited. So in my opinion, everyone got an A, doesn't count. We don't really do anything. And the, um, as Patricia mentioned, the last year's test scores came out and I feel like falling all over, the state education agency is falling all over itself to tell people don't compare this to the year before that we had from 1819. Can't compare them, different conditions, different testing, same kids. So I kind of feel like you could, right? But don't compare them. Um, and that we wanna use these as a flashlight, not a hammer. So. What I have been hearing for several years in Missouri is we don't want letter grades because people will feel badly. We don't want a system that makes parents wonder if their child's going to a bad school. I guess we want them to just remain in the dark about that. And so um, one thing that I want to go ahead and just mention is that the Show Me Institute in October launched a website. I'm going to share it um, where we uh, 
we created letter grades for districts and schools, and it's called most school rankings. It looks like this. And if you click on it, say this district, we did letter grades across 10 different areas for schools. This is high point R3, and it does pretty darn well. I will tell you a lot of districts don't do this well, but we calculated letter grades on a very straightforward system and put them all together into a GPA. And um, we did this because the state is unwilling to. And what I believe, and this is what I would love to hear from Patricia, is, you know, it's that premise of um, hard now, easy later, or easy now, hard later. It's like you do the hard work and the, you get a payoff for that through higher performance of the schools across the board. And the longer that we just decide to keep our head in the sand, uh, the, the longer we're pushing out that horizon for when Missouri schools might actually see improvement. And Florida, as I love to cite, like on the national tests, they have leapfrogged well over Missouri. They've climbed way up because they were they put a, a hard line, line in the sand about um, early reading, third and fourth graders being able to read on grade level, and they've given parents a ton of choices. And so every family in Florida, when they decide where the, you know, if they have a kindergartner, they get to pick where that child goes to school or how they're educated in lots of different ways. And so Missouri has not put letter grades on and we have not done school choice. And I don't feel like we have an accountability system. Now, I will just say that our system is called the Missouri School Improvement Plan or MSIP. We are currently on MSIP 5. We're about to move to MSIP 6. And from what I understand, MSIP 6 will be less ac academic than MSIP 5. And there will still not be letter grades, colors, stars, or anything like that. Like a one thing that a parent could say, my school is four stars or a D or a blue. So that, that still will not exist. But that's where it stands in Missouri. We're doing more of the same, probably moving to a more watered down system and probably perpetuating this idea that it's better to stay in the dark. Well, sorry, other, uh, that's where I come than, from. <laughs> other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? But, um, exactly. but I, I'm glad that you, um, that you brought up Florida. Um, cause that's actually the next question that I was going to ask, uh, Patricia, which is sort of comparing and contrasting. Could you tell a bit of the, the kind of Florida story, uh, the decisions that were made, um, and, and what do you think the impact of those have been? Sure. Um, so the story goes back to 1999. It was the first year that Governor Bush was in office and he had campaigned on, I want to make sure that we're really clear with parents about how their child school is doing. So I want to grade schools A, B, C, D, F, because that's the way students are graded. And as part of his package of reforms, it wasn't just the grading of schools. We also created rewards. So if a school improved a letter grade, you know, F to a D, D to a C, C to a B, B to an A, you got reward money. And that was money that the teachers and the parents could decide how to spend. And there were also consequences for, for failure. So parents um, whose children were assigned to a school that got its second F were given public and private school choice. So there was a package of things done all at once. I, um, and then there was stuff that was built on every year. I think that's one of the other things that happened in Florida is that we didn't just stop after one year. There was a constant uh, push every single year to raise the bar or add more uh, supports and interventions. Susan certainly referenced the 
focus on early literacy, making sure kindergarten, first, second, third graders were screened early, that we identified students who were struggling, that we provided personal interventions, and that we had a real <clears throat> line in the sand between third and fourth grade. Because up until third grade, kids are still reading, learning to read. And then when they get to fourth grade, there is no more reading class on the subject list. Students are expected to read in order to learn their material. So a lot of those kinds of things were done together. Zach, if, if you could pop that slide up, I wanna show you um, what school grading has looked like over time. So the green line here is the number or the percent of A and B schools in the state. The blue line, the bottom line, or the percent of D and F schools. A couple of things to notice from this slide. One is the first time that we graded schools, the bar was set so high that we had more D and F schools than A and B schools. That was rough. <laughs> That's a rough year, the first time that happened. But you'll notice there was immediate response, right? The very next year, we changed that, that um, there were more A and B schools than DNF, than DNF schools. You're gonna notice on this slide, there are several dotted gray arrows pointing up. These are points in time where we did something to raise the bar, whether it was raising the cut score on the writing test or adding in science into the uh, school grading system or adding in measures in high school like the percent of students who earned college credit or an industry credential as part of the measure in high school. What's really important I think is look at the second gray um, dotted line which occurs around 2005. When you see most of these gray lines, the immediate next year, you see a little dip, right? There's a little dip in the number of A and B schools and a little increase in the number of D and F schools because you've just raised the bar. You've made things a little harder, but almost immediately you see the following year, there's an upward uh, uh, tra trajectory on student performance because the schools adjust, the schools and the teachers and the, and the students rise to meet the new bar. There's a little bit of stuff on the, near the tail end of this slide where from 2013 to 2016, there was a lot of change four years in a row. I'm happy to uh, give you my opinion that that's too much change, too close together. Some of it was self-inflicted by the state. Some of it was around the time of uh, federal waivers and states had to make certain changes to their accountability system. And the timing of those things kind of all came together at the same time we were changing standards and tests. So a lot of change at once. And I would not recommend a lot of change, you know, every single year for a couple of years, because we had, we actually, probably if you polled public confidence in school accountability, we were at a low point in that because there was just so much change there was so much churn to the system. So a lot of, I think, interesting things to take away from this slide. The thing that I would talk about is you have to have an accountability system where the bar for performance is high enough so that schools have to stretch, but it's not so high that everybody's a failure, right? If you set a bar that's so high, which 
you know, if you set the bar that 90 to 100% of all the kids in the school have to be reading and doing math on grade level and graduating, probably in every single state, you're going to have a massive number of, of C, D, or F schools. And you might have set it so high that schools can't see their way toward um, ever achieving that A or a B. What I think Florida did well in the first decade of our school accountability system is taking a gradual every couple of years when performance got high enough, you know, deciding to systematically raise the bar and keep that pressure on. And if you looked, I don't have a slide, I should have uh, developed one on NAEP performance for Florida. You can see the biggest growth that Florida had on the NAEP was in the first decade of the reforms. The second decade, I'm, I'll, I'll admit to you, has been a little bit more up, down, up, down, up, down. And I'm happy to go into the weeds on why I think that is, but um, having an A through F grading system is not the only thing you need to do, right? You can grade schools A through F, but if you're not measuring appropriately, if you don't have a high enough bar, if you don't continually look to raise the bar over time, you'll start stagnating, which is what I would say Florida has been doing in the last couple of years. You know, we had a great question uh, in the Q&A, so I think we can we all just sort of intersperse these as, as they pop up. We won't save them all to the end. Um, so, uh, Patricia, based, based on what you were just saying, a question, what contributed to the momentum Florida was able to sustain in these years? I mean, it seems like you saw this pretty regular, as you thought the intervals were right uh, between these decisions being made. Um, and then maybe I might tweak the question a little bit to the end because you you express some skepticism towards more recent times. So I'd be interested in your thoughts, both what had that good momentum in, in the, the beginning of that slide you showed, and then what sort of change where it kind of petered out? Uh, well, <clears throat> I'm going to say the first decade of, of um, strong performance in Florida, I, I have to give credit to Governor Bush in that education was his number one priority. And it wasn't something that was, you check the box, you did it in year one, and then you didn't have to really pay attention to it the rest of his term. So it was really clear in, in at least his two terms. So for eight years that he was not gonna have the system go backwards. It was gonna continue to push it forward. And so all of those regular intervals of raising the bar, of paying attention to the data, of making sure we were investing in things that would have made a difference like early literacy policy, that was his agenda. And that was gonna be the agenda that he um, worked with the, the legislature to accomplish. I would say that carried on for a, a little period of time after he left. And I'm not saying that the, that the state has walked away completely from accountability, but I am saying that um, things like the State Board of Education's actions, the last time we went and, and changed standards and changed tests, were, were um, we weren't as strong as we needed to be, right? So if you don't raise the bar on your school grading scale and 78, I think was the, percent, uh, the percentage at the time of your elementary schools were A's, 78% were A's. What, it, what do you need to change if you're a school superintendent and the vast majority of schools are, your, are A's? If you could 
if you overlaid that look at school grades for that period of time and our NAEP scores, you would see, and our state test scores, we, we started to flatline in elementary school student performance on the test score. Why? Because we had arrived. We were all A's. The very next time that we raised the bar, that's when you started to see a bump in state test score data and NAEP performance because we had made it a little bit harder. So there had to be some thought by the adults at the school level, what are we gonna do? The bar is a little bit higher. We don't wanna be a B or a C or a D or an F. We wanna be an A. So what are we gonna do to continue to help support um, students and, and, and improve? And that, that was, it was Governor Bush and, and his protection of those policies in their infancy that I think allowed us to make a lot of progress in those early years. Sure. So now, Susan, I'd, I'd be interested to kind of circle back to the, the project that you and Shomi have undertaken to, to kind of independently grade schools. And I'm just kind of curious, like, what did you learn in that process? Like when you were doing all this stuff, what, what, what do you take away from actually d- doing that? Sure. I mean, we, um, we set the the median grade at a 2.0 or a C. So one thing I learned is that people don't like C's. So it's like uh, a GPA of 2.0 was middle of the pack an average school. If 42% of Missouri students read on grade level and in your district, 42% of students read on grade level, you're a C, you're just in the average. And I think a lot of people that I spoke to at least initially are used to only really high GPAs and high grades. And so C was, uh, you know, it's absolute was a bell curve. So you had D's and F's in the tail and A's and B's in this tail and then mostly C's in the middle. And um, we did that very deliberately to to reflect how how grades often work. But uh, that's one thing I learned. But um, another thing that I think is interesting is, you know, to Patricia's point, we have a bit of a vacuum when it comes to leadership in Missouri on the issue of education. And I think that we don't have a real champion standing up and saying our schools aren't good enough. We have champions standing up and saying we need to support our teachers and we need to support families and we love local control. But no one is really saying, hey, our schools are not good enough. So the test that Patricia was talking about called NAEP is given in every state across the country every two years by the federal Department of Education. So you can compare one state to the other. And um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the last test, the Florida fourth graders in math and uh, reading, they were in single digits. They're top 10. Right. And Missouri used to be maybe 15th or 20th. Now we're 35th, 30th. Like we have slowly declined. Our scores have kind of stayed flat, but everyone else has jumped up over us. So we are being complacent because there isn't a leader saying our schools aren't good enough. Now, I will say that since this came out out in October, our Department of Education has released school report cards that are graphic, that are uh, pictures and uh and, and that's an improvement because they're easier for a parent to understand, but they still are missing this important thing, which is a grade or a word or a thing that helps you understand is, is my child's school better doing better than the district average? Is it doing as well as the state average? Is it doing better or worse than the schools next to it? When the original federal education law was passed in 1965, they started saying then, if we're going to invest in schools, we ought to know how schools are doing. We ought to know, is this school better than that school? And we're still kind of fight 50 years later, fighting this battle in Missouri. And I've even had legislators say, why don't you think we have this? 
then I've had to say it's technically your job <laughs> to make sure we have this, but we need a real champion because, um, of course, I work in education policy, so maybe I see the world through this lens. However, good schools and a great education system attracts families. Families attract businesses, right? Like the Missouri GDP would improve if we had a better education system. Missouri's rates of poverty would go down if we had a better education system. You know, we would have a better workforce and we would have companies who want to locate here for high school graduates who are stronger. Uh, I've often talked about the Florida program where a district and a teacher can get a financial uh, bump for getting students out of a, a CTE program with an actual certificate they can go out and get a job with. I mean, we could be doing things. And I feel like, uh, you know, I'm out here talking about it all the time and complaining all the time, but we need leadership at the top to say education needs to be a priority and we have to do the hard work and put letter grades on schools. It's like, getting on the scale or looking at your checking account balance. It's painful, but we need to do this hard work. Um, I believe it was President Bush who said, you, you can't fix what you don't measure. I mean, everyone has said this. Can't fix what you don't measure, right? You can't fix what you don't measure. So we need a true system to measure. Um, and so and so we have, we have this project. Another thing I learned, which is just a mystery, uh, since we launched this, I've heard nothing from the State Department of Education about our website, not a thing. So I haven't heard any criticism or any it's almost like it doesn't exist. So, um, so I don't know if I can't impugn motives, maybe everyone's too busy to notice, but we've had more than 50,000 page views by Missourians. I've had superintendents contact me to ask about a number, which I gave them the source. It's all just public dusty data. Um, I've had parents contact me. I've had parents take it to superintendents, but I haven't had anyone from Desi. Uh, it's been very uh, crickets on from, from them. Great. So, um, Patricia, I think a question from uh, a question from the audience that begins with a statement that I think all of us can get behind, which is Missouri's rating system, the APR, makes no logical sense. <laughs> the question uh, is, how did Florida make sure its system made sense or couldn't be gained? Wow. So there's a there's a couple of parts to that, and I would say the first, you know, is is the rating. A, B, C, D, F, and I'm gonna give you an example of the state of Virginia because Virginia has a very similar um, accredited, conditionally accredited, highly accredited, right? It's at the, the nomenclature that was there. I was in um, a big auditorium with a, a, a former governor in Virginia because he wanted to make some changes in the school rating system. And so when it was my turn to talk, I got up and I asked this audience that was full of the teachers from that high school, parents from that, you know, that high school and some other folks in the community. And I said, raise your hand if you know the difference between. And then I went through the conditionally accredited, accredited, fully accredited, blah, 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 the, the five terminology. And there were two people that raised their hands. And I was thinking, that's probably the principal and the assistant principal. Um, and then I said, and then tell me, who understands this? A, B, C, D, F. And everybody in the whole audience raised their hands. And the point that I was making is, even if your parents or your teachers or your, you know, the public doesn't know what goes into the calculation, people intuitively understand A and B is good. D and F means there's a lot, of, you know, there might be a lot of failure going on. And C means a lot of room for improvement. So the rating system 
that's clear gets you halfway to where you need to go, right? Just communicating um, a status level of performance that requires some action to make change. The, the other part of it is what are you measuring? And I think we have a lot of principles that we talk to states about on what to measure. I've always talked to state chiefs and said, you really need to think about what you measure and how that gets translated into the classroom to a teacher. And I would say there are three things that should be communicated to a teacher. Your goal teacher is to get every student that you teach to grade level performance or higher. That's what you should be shooting for. Another goal should be you should move every child further than where you got them, right? You need to make progress with every single child in your classroom. And the third is your most at risk, most behind students. You've got to catch them up more than others if they're ever going to get to that grade level performance. So you have to pay extra attention to the most struggling students. And if you, if your accountability system is sending those messages to teachers, they're going to be focused on what? Getting kids, kids to grade level, making sure they all make progress and making sure the most struggling kids get attention. Whenever you add too many other things to your accountability system that distract from that, and I'll give you an example of how important the simplicity of the calculation is, right? So when you look at performance, the way that we recommend schools measure performance is what percent of your kids are on grade level or higher on the state test. It's a, it's a pretty simple mathematical calculation. The numerator is the percent of kids who are scoring grade level or higher, and the denominator is all the kids that should have taken the test. What a lot of states will do in some of these things is they'll create indices. Indices where you get a, a little bit more points if you get them to a level four versus a level three, and you get a little bit of credit if you moved level, you know, the lowest performing level student and the scale is 225. So if you get an 85 off of a scale of 225, right? That's how many points you get. Nobody understands that. Teachers don't understand that. And in fact, what those kind of, of um, indicators do is they don't do what I said in making it really clear to the teacher, help all your kids get to, to grade level performance. What instead you have are district or school level leaders that will say, you really got to work uh, on helping Mike because we know we're going to get 50% more points from Mike if Mike's right on the bubble and we're going to get him here. It causes this gaming, this very unnatural thing to happen in the classroom when you have too many indicators. So nobody knows what they're supposed to be working on. And when your indicators are not clear, like I keep there, there, it really is. You got to be simple. You got to be transparent. You have to have honest calculations that a normal person could understand if they really attempted to dig into, to what was being included in your grading system. Now, having said that, Mike, your second part of your question is how did you prevent gaming? Well, let me tell you, gaming, <laughs> gaming goes on. I felt like the first decade or so after our accountability system was in place, my job was to play whack-a-mole. Like here's where they're trying to game the system, beat that back down. And I'll give you an example. Um, when we first started grading schools, we didn't grade what were called alternative schools. 
These were what, you know, some people call second chance schools. It's where you place students for behavioral issues that, but for putting them in that school, you're going to expel them from the system because the behavior was just so egregious, right? And since we didn't grade them, right, guess what we started seeing after a couple of years of grading schools? Here would be, I'm going to pick on a particular school district, Polk High School in Polk County, that all of a sudden asked for, we need a new school number on the same campus. We were, we're putting an alternative school on this campus. And all they were doing was pushing the low performing kids, not the behavioral, you know, challenging kids that should have been, you know, suspended or expelled. They were just putting low performers into their alternative school to get them out of the school accountability calculation. So what do you have to do? You have to close that loophole, right? I, so there, there's a constant vigilance that I think that needs to be to take place because as much as we would all want for adults in the system to just focus on helping every single child succeed, too often in a really strict accountability system, adults look for just ways to game, ways to game. And it is something that you have to be very vigilant uh, about. So, um, Susan, I might go with another question from Q&A. So thanks, folks, for joining. We got a whole bunch of them. I'm, I apologize if I'm not able to get to everybody's question. But, um, you know, one, and uh, the reason I'm asking this, because it dovetails with a question that I was going to ask anyway. So great minds uh, think alike here. So one question is, um, are school grade criteria based on standardized test results? And if so, is it possible schools are teaching to these tests or there's too much emphasis on STEM. Uh, this is sort of the question that I was going to ask of, um, to what extent do these rely on standardized tests for people who may be skeptical of standardized tests? Like, how would you respond to, to that criticism? Or narrowing the curriculum? You, you're, you're roughly familiar with the arguments that are here. Sure, sure, sure. They've been around 20, 25 years, at least. No, more than that, 35 years. I mean, it's been going a while, right? When we started this really push for accountability was in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, and then this teaching to the test thing became a thing. Um, well, I will say that um, we, there can't be too much emphasis happening in Missouri because only 35% of our students are proficient in math. So I don't think that we're really, we've narrowed it to the extent that we are, are teaching to the test, but yes, it is based on standards and it's based on an assessment and the standards are set at the state level. And that is what the Missouri Department of Education has decided all Missouri students should know at each grade in each subject. And that's what they are tested against. And that is what teachers are supposed to be teaching. So to the extent that people feel that schools shouldn't work that way, um, this is the way schools work. And this is how we know if a student has learned or not. So, and this is how we know if a teacher has been teaching well or not. So they are based based on that number. Now, in addition, most states, um, well, I think all states are required to have a measure of growth, which is how far each student went from the fall when they showed up in that classroom to the spring. That's a very important measure on both ends of the spectrum because high achievers, you want to make sure they get a year's worth of growth and weren't just sitting around waiting for the next grade to happen, right? They deserve a year of growth, growth and certainly low achievers who might not get to the level of being on grade level. We want them to progress at least a year as well. Now, in Missouri, we have a growth model, but in our thing where we put all the points together and give every school a number, which is Byzantine, I have a paper on this, showmeinstitute.org, the growth numbers are extra credit. 
So it doesn't count towards the school accountability number. Um, if you get them, great. But we have several measures. We have five, five basic things where schools get points. And in each of them, there are more numbers on the top half of the fraction than on the bottom half of the fraction. So if you need to get 10 attendance points, you got 14 possible. So you could get 100% of the points by not getting 100% of the points. It's a very, it's set up almost to hide low performance. So growth is not emphasized. Now I will say on our um, on our website that we built, mostschoolrankings.org, I'm gonna share it again. I feel like I'm plugging it, but I kind of am. Um, ABC, always be closing. That's what you're doing. That's right, that's right. As my husband's salesperson, if you don't ask. Um, so we took the growth grades that the Department of Education puts out right here, a growth grade in English language arts and a growth grade in math, and we actually graded them. So they put the numbers out. They're kind of weird. They're centered on 50. Parents see them. I'm sure most people have no idea what they represent. And, and we actually gave them a grade that was equivalent to whether students are on grade level or not. And I will say that our grading system is heavily based on assessment grades in reading and math, because that is ultimately, you know, the basic purpose of the education system that you need to get right first, I think, in addition to all the other things that have been piled upon it. But this is the basic um, premise of having a system of public education is to be, make kids literate and numerate. And so, um, so we did apply grades to the growth. So I would say that it would be great if Missouri would, their new accountability system they're, they're still working on it, so I could be proven wrong. I saw a 22-page document that had half a page on academics. The rest of it was on how many books in the library and how many librarians for students and uh, student satisfaction and a lot of stuff that was not academic. So if you don't like this idea of teaching to the test, you might like MSIP 6, but it's going to be really hard to know how schools are doing academically. Um, we are updating our website with the 2020-2021 data even as we speak. So those numbers will be up there. Uh, we will update uh, test scores as they come out and update the grades as they come out. And we will do it until DESE decides to do it themselves. Which I'll be a very old person, I'm afraid, but. Mike, can I jump in on, sure. on your question on yeah. just, you know, the teaching to the test and narrowing the curriculum. And um, so I met with a group of teachers years ago when Florida, um, Florida teachers can volunteer to serve on committees to develop and review questions before they make it onto the state test. And I remember going to this group of teachers and saying, why do, do you know, what do you think of the state test? And all of these teachers were like, it's great. It's fantastic. They, they loved working on these committees. And I said, why do some of your fellow teachers maybe have angst with the test? And I'll never forget this science teacher uh, looked at me and said, because now they have to teach all the standards. And I said, tell me more. And, and his response was, in, in his example of science, you could have two science teachers in the same, on the same hallway, and their kids were getting very, very, very different science instruction. And he would say, I would teach all the standards because I, that would be my job. I need to make sure I'm covering everything so kids get um, you know, that I'm teaching all of the different standards. Whereas my fellow teacher down the hall really, really just liked the rainforest. So she'd camp out for two months on the rainforest and do all kinds of stuff related to the rainforest, but she wouldn't spend time covering, 
you know, the water cycle or the levels of the atmosphere that, you know, like all these other particular standards, teachers couldn't do that now because you don't know which of the standards are going to be measured on the test at the end of the year. So you actually do have to try to cover all the standards with your students. And he said, and it's that change for some teachers that gives them angst because they weren't actually teaching all of the expected standards to their students. And I think that's really important. The other thing that isn't like an anecdotal thing from my sister um, who responded that, you know, what she would hear are complaints from teachers on the test. Oh, this test that restrains how I teach and it, and it just cramps my style in teaching. And, you know, I just have to do all these worksheets and, you know, uh, the, the complaints that she was getting. My sister's response was, if that's true, right, if the test so cramps your style of instruction, then after the test is over, because in a lot of states, there's still like six to eight weeks left of the school year, then I would expect the richest, most vibrant, most engaging instruction to occur after the test is finished because you're free teach what you want to, it's, you know, the, the test isn't constraining you, but the reality in a lot of places is that after the test is done, you know, the science book is sent home. Like we're not even going to cover the material anymore. There's this, there's this dead time and this dead zone um, after the tests are done. So I think there's, first of all, it's really important that we make sure our students are getting instructed in all the standards. And the test is kind of a, a truth serum for that in those subjects. And the other thing is teachers can be creative. I think one of the most incredible ways that we see really high performing schools respond to a school accountability is they like, we don't worry about it. We do our best, richest instruction and we know that it, the kids are gonna do fine on the test. And, I, and those are you know, two really important concepts that I hope uh, your audience um, hears. Awesome. So um, we've had a couple questions around kind of um, sort of brass tacks. So, okay. It sounds like people are convinced by what you all have had to say. So what needs to happen? So maybe Susan in Missouri, if we want to have more accountability for our schools, like who, who, who do we need to talk to? Like who's in charge of this? Uh, what do we need to tell them? Like what needs to happen and who, who is, uh, who's going to be making these decisions? Yeah. So we have, um, we have uh, legislators both in the Senate and the house, including the um, committee chairs of the education committees uh, who have discussed this. We have had bills come up in the last couple of years uh, for school report cards that have letter grades. They haven't made it very far. Last year, we had a big win on creating scholarship accounts for students that, um, individuals can contribute to and take a credit off their taxes. And those scholarships have not yet started being passed out, but they will be in August, hopefully, or September. So that was a big win. And, and I do feel like legislators stood up for families in that one. But it's time to, you know, uh, we've been on this as participant of this data vacation. It's time to uh, double down because we know that we have a ton of learning loss in the state. And if, if the leaders don't talk about it, parents talk about it. Parents know how their children are doing and they're worried. So I think it's time to be creative in creating programs. I think Florida might've done this, if not Arizona for sure, that help parents get tutoring that they want and need. And it's time to um, 
be very transparent. And we, you know, they have not put the new accountability system into place yet, this MSIP 6. They could go back and rethink the whole thing and they could make it a true accountability system with letter grades. And we would really push for that. Um, uh, you, there's a lot going on in the state legislative session right now, but I hope that uh, public education is front and center because, you know, parents are fed up right now. It's been a tough couple of years and parents are very upset. And now is not the time to, to let off the gas at all. So I would say school report cards with letter grades would be a great start. And it seems to me that's important because there were some people have asked this question, sort of who, who are we talking about? I think people understate the role that it's DESE, the State Department of Education, the State Board that's of right. Education. These are the types of people who design these, that the legislature plays a role in these things, but that the State Board of Education actually has. Am I right in saying that they're the that's people right. who are ultimately that's right. making these That's right. So the State Board decisions? of Education, and in Missouri, the, they are appointed by the governor and they hire the commissioner of education. Some states, the superintendent of education is elected, but in our state, the board gets appointed and they hire the commissioner. Um, there are plenty of commissioners across the country that uh, are leaning into innovation and school choice. And there's a whole group of um, chiefs for change, uh, chiefs for change that are that are working on these issues. There are plenty of people from within the system. The commissioner of education in Florida, I think he's called the commissioner very strong for parents and families and choice. And, and that could happen, but that's right. But the legislature ultimately is who they work for, right? So they have the ability to put in place um, uh, programs like a school report card and then Desi would be administering it. So it's, it's they have plenty of leeway, and but it, we really need people who will stand up and take a strong stance for families and for students so that public education actually can improve in this state and not, go out on the campaign trail and say, I support, you know, education and then do nothing. Like we really need some um, big, bold ideas and people who will stand up and take political, use political capital to make them happen. Awesome. Well, I think one last call for questions here. We have just a couple minutes left. Um, so we'll try and get through the ones we have. But if anybody else uh, has questions, speak now or forever hold your peace. Um, Patricia, I think another great question from the chat here. Um, uh, Missouri got a boatload of money from the federal government, um, like uh, lots of states. I think the sum total of the three coronavirus relief bills was somewhere in the neighborhood of $190 billion with a B dollars. Um, the one question is, where did it go? That may be outside the scope, even though financial. I know, Susan, I, I appreciate in the, the scorecards that you all put together, you have expenditures per student and all of that. Um, but then part of the question is, can it be used for this? So I'm curious about, so if states want to do more around accountability, want to do this, can COVID funds be spent on that? I, I actually, it's a question I don't know, Patricia, I feel like you're the exact person sure. who would know the answer to that question. Sure. Well, <clears throat> Mike, there were three rounds of federal funds provided. And so there are different criteria and restrictions and use of funds for all three different rounds of, of funding. But but there is a portion in each of the three rounds that the State Department of Education has control over. There was a portion in the first two rounds that the governor of the state had control over and, oh, by the way, could have sent money directly to parents in order to get the tutoring or therapies or you know, digital devices if you needed that to, to plug into online learning. So the, the, the flexibility for the state departments of education and how to spend the funds is pretty broad in the first two rounds. You, um, we saw states invest in early literacy 
making sure that teachers were trained in the science of reading, in putting the money into um, summer camps or after school type of programs in order to make sure kids had the opportunity to catch up. They could put it into professional development. They could have, I mean, there was a, there was a great deal of flexibility in how the funds are spent. In this past round, the vast majority of the funding went straight to your school district. So there was less of an ability for the state to tell the school districts what to do with the funds. Um, but several school districts, um, I mean, there was, there's a great deal of flexibility and I am not aware of, of any school district that has already spent those funds. Like it's still there. The money is still there. There's so much of it. I usually give the example of Miami-Dade in Florida that is one of, the, I think it's the fourth, third or fourth largest school district in the entire country. They received almost a hundred million dollars more in round three of federal funding than the entire state of Florida's annual Title I allocation. So like that's the the scale of the amount of money that has been provided to um, states and districts in order to help with learning loss, provide tutoring supports, implement, you know, really, I think what they can do is invest in infrastructure that actually pays rewards later on, right? Create the programs that help your teachers know how to help a child who's got reading difficulties, prepare the curriculum, do all of those things so that you can you can have and use that uh, in later years. The other thing that I wanna call out is there are several states that have used the federal funds in order to provide these, we call them micro grants directly to parents. Micro grants where parents could buy the laptop or pay for connectivity or get tutoring supports or pay for camps or things that would help their child pay for therapies, um, Idaho, did it, Texas has done it, Oklahoma has done it. Um, there have been more states that have talked about committing uh, state or federal resources in order to get funding directly to parents, which Mike, one thing that we didn't talk about is just school choice in general. I would say in this whole overlay of what Florida has done on assessment and accountability, Florida has also been really clear that we have to allow parents to pick the education or the school that best works for their child. Children are really unique. And so Florida has uh, more than 200,000 parents that are getting state support to pick the private school of their choice or an education savings account where the parent could homeschool and then use the funding for all kinds of different services. We have nearly 350,000 students that are in public charter schools. Like there's a lot of school choice. We have a statewide online public virtual school that is free to homeschoolers and private schoolers and public school students. And so I think in Florida, it was accountability, early literacy policy and choice, a lot of school choice for families because the more that you empower a parent to find and curate this, the education that their child needs, the better the whole system will become because they have to respond to the parents. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, 
I mean, who has two thumbs and loves school choice? This guy right here. So I'm, I'm glad that that was part of it as well. But I also, I have to, I'm, I'm a Kansas City boy. So I would be remiss if I didn't, I saw, you know, the coverage in the star and everything. Um, Susan, the Kansas City's accreditations, I guess now are they, they're going up to being fully accredited or provisionally, they're going from unaccredited to provisionally. Can you, what, what happened there? Um, and it seems I mean, that we've St. been Louis talking did about the same thing that the same thing happened in St. Louis. Uh, we have other Ferguson fluorescents fully accredited and their rates of proficiency are single digits. I would say if 3% of your eighth graders are proficient in math, you can't be fully accredited. I don't understand what they go through, but a lot of it has to do with getting back to local control. Cause if you're not accredited, one thing, uh, if, I don't know if you, understand how it works, Patricia, but in, in Missouri, basically, if you're not fully accredited, charter schools come after you. You can open charter schools. We only have charter schools in two districts, which are the ones that were unaccredited. And it was a punishment, which is uh, unbelievable to me. But you can get charter schools and, and you can also, we used to have a voluntary transfer program. So I don't know if making these districts fully accredited sort of starts to cut off these other options that there isn't a big appetite for and gets them back to uh, maybe an elected school board and local control. But there's, I can't understand mathematically how it happened. It's hard to understand because the students in Kansas City public schools are not thriving. So the fact that they're called fully accredited now also, you know, uh, our Department of Education doesn't put a word like accredited on schools, only on districts. But in St. Louis, when the St. Louis public schools became fully accredited magically, they issued like 20 foot by 30 foot banners to put on every school that said fully accredited, even though it didn't mean the school was fully accredited. It meant that it was like in very small print on the bottom, but it had the name of the school, fully accredited, and a picture of children that looked like the children, like if it was an elementary school, they were young kids, a high school had older kids, like Anybody would think, I thought, I wrote a blog and got my hand slapped. I thought that meant that school was fully accredited, but no. So whether Kansas City will do that or not, but in, in my opinion, I I did an event to out um, to um, talk about this website we built. And um, some folks who were there who were unhappy about it said that it's classist and racist to point out that kids go to a low performing school. And then it's better for parents not to know because it makes them feel bad. And I submit to you, Mike McShane, that is classist and racist because to say that you're better off not telling parents what the school is like or putting a banner on the side of the school saying fully accredited, even though it's completely false, to me is misleading parents. And I think that that is insulting. So um, for the record, just so I can like follow up on that last question, Missouri has in the latest round of stimulus funds, they got 2 billion. So they get to keep 10% or about 200 million. It's actually about 190 million at the state department of education to do with as some of the things that we've suggested, they are talking about upgrading their it system, which is desperately needed. But, um, so they have about $200 million to work with, which is not nothing. Right. And the earliest round where the governor had control over it, there was a governor's fund. We had 60 million I think 20 million of that went into um, a transportation fund that districts can apply to get reimbursed for transportation at a time when every school shut down, for the record, uh, for two or three years. So I, I wouldn't say that we've done uh, great things with it, but uh, I would like, you know, we have this new ESA program or scholarship program that is funded through tax credits. I'd like them to take 25 million and just fund it first year, just seed fund that thing so that it can get it off the ground and get scholarships into the hands of families. Uh, there are things that they could be doing. 
with that $200 million, they could be working on a, a grading system. So that's, it's a lot of money. We've had, I don't know if you've seen the Missouri budget. I mean, it is so much money that we're putting money into a rainy day fund. I mean, we have more money than the state's ever had, and it's certainly true in education. So that's not the problem this year. Yes, an important corrective to the frequent conversation that we hear of That's perpetual right. not enough money. cuts and not enough money and whatever. Not not It has never really been true, and it's definitely not true right now. Well, look, we're, we're at the end of our time, but I'd like to give each of you one chance to just sort of uh, wrap up comments um, sort of from this, from, from your perspective, looking at Missouri, looking around the country, sort of what you see going forward, what needs to get done. Um, uh, Susan, maybe I'll have, I'll have you go first, but just for a couple minutes here, you know, the floor is yours. So I think uh, I talk about this a lot, but here's what I know for sure. Well, to be like Oprah, here's what I know for sure. Missouri can get better. There are states across this country doing much better than us. There are states with better systems in place. There are children learning more things in other states. And I know we can get better. And I just want to keep pressing us to get better and not to accept the status quo. We can get better. There's lots of great ideas out there. The Excel and Ed, I was going to say one group, Excel and Ed, did a whole thing on how to design a good report card, a whole thing, as to the Department of Education. There is, it's not for lack of information. So uh, Missouri, we could do better. And I just want to continue to challenge the legislature and DESE to, to do better. Awesome. Patricia, the floor is yours. Sure. I would say uh, there's two things that all states should pay attention to, and that is uh, school accountability and, and educational choice. Those things really do go hand in hand and they're not mutually exclusive. You can work on both of them. A strong school accountability system needs to be transparent and A, B, C, D, F grades um, are transparent. I'll, I'll share a story about a former commissioner of education in Florida who started in 1999. Uh, she was a school principal when we first graded schools and her school got a D that first year. And she will tell the story that she was so upset. She was mad at the governor. She was mad at the state. She didn't like the accountability system. But what did she do as a principal? She organized her teachers and figured out a way to improve what they were doing in the next year. They got a B and she was thrilled. And she will tell you that she never would have taken those steps as a principal. She thought they were doing a good job by her students until the state shone a light on it. And, and she then after that became a huge advocate for grading because she realized what it did for her in organizing her teachers in order to, to help the students. And then that last point on, on school choice, I think we all realize children are different and what works for one child in the same household may be very different than works for another child. And the more that the thing that the pandemic has shown us is Parents need options. They need to be able to have the, the leverage and the financial opportunity to find the education system that works best for their child. If Missouri would do those two things, you would see um, tremendous uh, results. Well, thank you so much, both of you. Um, I would encourage those who are watching, either live or, or recorded, check out moschoolrankings.org. Uh, if you're in Missouri right now, you can look at your school district and you can look at the grades, you can look at the numbers, you can look at how much they spend. You can see average teacher salaries, lots of things. Uh, I think so many debates in education are sort of fact-free 
And this is a case where folks can say, no, you do know how much teachers get paid. You do know how much is being spent per student. And uh, the reality doesn't always uh, comport with the rhetoric, but you can be on the side of reality. So again, thanks so much to Susan and Patricia. Also check out the Show Me Institute's website, www.showmeinstitute.org, I believe is the, the website. I hope it still is the website because people are going to be headed there. But thank you all so much for, for okay. joining us um, and uh, look forward to more great programming from Missouri's own Show Me Institute.